particularly with diversity, if we are not able to demonstrate how that happens in real life, then they're just theories and frameworks. And so being able to share that and challenge folks to think about what that might look like in our workplaces, in our school settings, with our students, but with our colleagues, so that we can continue with progress. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo. And this is The Future of Work. Today, our host, Salvatrice Kumo, speaks with another leader in the academic administrative space, Dr. Raquel Torres-Ratana, who holds a dean position at Pasadena City College's satellite campus in Rosemead. But we quickly learn that what Dr. Torres-Ratana brings to the decision-making table is much more than her deanship. She leverages her ability as a leader to keep her key objectives at the forefront, which is to embed a culture of equity and inclusivity on the Rosemead campus. How exactly does she accomplish this? Let's take a listen and find out. Welcome back to another episode of the Future of Work podcast. I am your host, Salvatrice Kumo. And with me today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Torres Retana, Dean of Rosemead and Community Partnership at Pasadena City College. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been a, quite a ride this summer just trying to you know, get ourselves acclimated and ready for fall. So I imagine you're super busy and and I wanted to really sincerely thank you for your time. It has been a crazy summer. So and I'm, I'm <laughs> glad to be here. Absolutely. Our podcast is really about preparations for future of work, trends in future of work, things that our academic colleagues are working on, our political elected officials are working on, our industry is working on. And I think with you and your work with both the Rosemead campus, for those who are listening who may not know, is our satellite campus for Pasadena City College. And you have an external facing role with community partnerships. It's very unique. I mean, much like my role here is both inward facing and outward facing. I'm really excited to talk to you about some of the things that you're working on and see where there might be a nexus with what you're working on and what we continue to discuss here with the Future Word podcast. And one of the things that was brought to my attention was your LinkedIn profile. And the title that you use to brand your profile is that of social justice advocate in higher education. I'd like to hear a little bit more. How is that title meaningful to you? Why is it meaningful to you? 
And can you share with us what does it actually mean to be a social justice advocate? Absolutely. And that's a great question because it wasn't something that I just was like, oh, hey, let me just put this title on. It was an activity, a personal activity for me to be reflective. And I think when I first started LinkedIn, I think I put in higher education administrator. And I realized that I have a certain slant, right? Or I do have a bias and I do have a passion that is much more than a higher ed administrator. And my lens then is coming from that social justice perspective. And as I was reflecting, I was intentional about my words. And so social justice advocate in higher education, I think really does describe the work that I do and the work that I want to continue to be intentional about doing. When I reflected on that, how do I do that, right? How do I not just say that I'm an advocate, but what does that look like in action? And I realized that as a woman of color, as a first-generation professional, that I was at the table, at the decision-making table, and I've had the privilege to be able to see and experience how decisions are made and the impact that it has on our community. And so I am very intentional that when I am at the table, that I remain a voice for marginalized communities. I am able to share experiences of students that come from underserved communities. And so for that sense, in that when I am at the table, I remain an advocate. And I'm, you know, as I'm hearing things or as we're as administrators, we're discussing different perspectives, ensuring that that voice or that perspective doesn't get ignored. Or sometimes it's not even ignored. Sometimes folks just don't know. And so being mindful of that and bringing it to the table. It sounds like it's really also shaped your leadership styles, excuse me, not styles, but your leadership style. And your effort around the programming and the operations of the Rosemead campus. Is there examples of that that you can share about how that may have shaped your style and and how you operate and connect with the community? It's been happening since I was in college and I didn't even realize it. It was other folks coming to me talking about my leadership style. And so again, having to be reflective about how did this happen and where did it come from? When I was an undergrad, I was a sociology major at Whittier College, small liberal arts campus. And I had the opportunity to um, sit in on a guest lecture with Cesar Chavez, the United Farm Workers. It was so cool and it just touched me. It was an experience that I will never forget. And some of the the pillars that the United Farm Workers stand on is, you know, respect, dignity, and justice. And those three principles and values have really stayed with me without me realizing it. And so when I started working in education, I remembered that. I remembered working in, in one of my first jobs out of college, one of my first administrative roles. I was the director of a CalSOAP program, which is um, California Student Opportunity and Access Program. And I would envision if these were my parents bringing me to a college outreach program or trying to get information, how would I share that with my parents. My parents were immigrants. They were Spanish speakers. And so that was in the back of my mind. And using that model that Cesar Chavez used in the United Farm Workers really gave me a, a foundation. When I transitioned over to USC, being the director of El Centro Chicano, it was that same model and understanding. And as I've grown as an educator, 
it's just something that I, ca- I have carried with me. And so understanding and being reflective of what community are we in and how do we, how do I ensure that I am respecting that community, that I ensure that there's justice in the work that we do for that community and that there's always dignity, that we treat folks with dignity and being mindful of that. And so I've, I have been told that I embody that and I bring that out into the work that I do, which is a great compliment when folks tell me that because sometimes I'm not aware of it. And it's good to hear. Would you say that through your work and your leadership, that there is a difference between the student profile at the Rosemead campus and the Colorado campus? Is there a difference? And if so, how has your work kind of shaped the way programming happens at Rosemead and your partnerships within the community? Great question. And I think if you look at the demographics, you know, the stats that we see on paper, you won't see too much of a difference. First, I take into consideration the community that we're in and being in Rosemead on the border of El Monte, understanding the social economics of that portion of our district is definitely something that I take into effect. So it's a very different community than our northern part of the district. In that, then I understand that this is a working class community. Our students are either immigrants or children of immigrants because that's what the surrounding community is made up of. But again, if we look at the the demographics, we're looking at students of color, primarily Latinx and Asian Pacific Islander is what we see. That's the majority of the of the students that we see at Rosemead. And so it's understanding that piece of it. Because I had my own personal undergraduate experience at a small liberal arts college, when I got to Rosemead and I looked at the facility, I realized that we had a gem and that Pasadena City College in, on Colorado Boulevard is a great institution. And it's large and it's vibrant and it's dynamic. But Rosemead is a small, intimate academic community. And I tapped into that and I said, okay, how can we provide a small liberal arts education with the price tag of a community college? I've had amazing faculty and amazing staff that together we were able to bring that to Rosemead. And so the profile, the demographic is the same that you would find in Pasadena. The difference is that these students who have gravitated to Rosemead that continue to choose to take their courses at Rosemead. These are individuals that want that small, intimate community that are going to thrive. And so we've had students who have been able to arrange their schedule so that they are only taking courses at Rosemead because they have realized that that's a place for them to thrive, that they are engaging as they can best and learning. And so, you know, the courses that we offer are the same. Our instructors are the same. Many of our instructors are coming back and forth from Pasadena to Rosemead, but there's something about that facility. I believe it's because it's so small that folks are seeing each other and and we have built a community that students see each other on a regular basis. You know, they run into each other at the hallway. They see their faculty office hours are downstairs, you know, around the corner. So we've tapped into that. We're saying, okay, we're going to bring in speakers and hold our speakers in the center of our campus, which is our lobby. So when folks walk in, they feel it and they're automatically engaged and we're hearing great things. They love it. I love it. I love that you built that culture around inclusiveness, like you said, that tight community, that liberal arts feeling where it's a small, intimate community that engages with one another. They know who they are. They're comfortable 
in asking questions are comfortable with just the dynamics of that space because they feel that they're included. They have access to, right? It sounds like that small intimate community that's there feels like a level of access. There are no barriers to, to your point, access to speakers, access, access to programming, access to professionals, access to services, et cetera, et cetera. And we're there to also help them access the resources that are in Pasadena and helping them navigate. So understanding that for some students coming to the Pasadena campus may be overwhelming. And so if we can provide it in Rosemead, we will. If we can't, then we're going to tap them into those resources, help them navigate that resource. And for some students, they get to Rosemead and they're like, oh, this is way too small. Completely okay, because we have that Pasadena campus for them. Have you experienced any challenges and or opportunities in achieving that tight-knit community, that culture there at, at Rosemead? Yes, both. <laughs> challenges for sure, right? Because we're such a small campus and being at a public institution, regardless of how successful Pasadena is, we have limited resources. And so understanding that with a smaller population, it's harder for me as an administrator to sell that we need resources at Rosemead when we only have 3,000 students. And the Pasadena campus, you know, has 20,000 or 30,000 students. So it's hard. That is a challenge for sure. And so it's understanding then how do I then advocate and navigate myself and the resources. And a lot of it is partnerships, partnering with different campus partners and understanding that we may not be able to have a full service or a full staff person at Rosemead. How about we bring them once a month? How about we bring them twice a month so that our students are still getting those resources, access to those resources in, we're bringing the services to them as opposed to insisting that the student has to go and come to Pasadena, particularly, you know, our students are commuters, they're part-time, they're working. And so that that is that much more of a challenge. And so bringing those those services over to Rosemead again, maybe not every day, but to the extent possible that we can have them at Rosemead is very beneficial to our students. Through the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, our community partners engage with us very specifically around talent development, talent preparation, upskilling, et cetera, et cetera. Is there an opportunity for our community partners to engage with Rosemead Campus in that way too? Thinking about programming around the world of work, you mentioned the majority of your students are part-time. Do you find that there's a need there to embed just the world of work services? I mean, that can mean a plethora of things. Is there a need there? And how can our community partners that are listening right now, how could they be of service to the Rosemead Campus? Something that I'm looking forward to, actually, with coming back and picking up this new role with the community partnerships, there's definitely a need. When the world goes back, you know, post-pandemic, what is that workforce going to look like? And that's something that I'm interested in, in understanding and connecting with our deans, our academic deans, so that we can, we've already started these discussions about what types of programs and changes can we offer the community that are going to be taking into consideration workforce and skills that go along with academics, but then are able to assist our students with, like you mentioned, the upskilling, knowing that this is a population that is working, that is a priority in their lifestyle. And so understanding how we can help them develop their skills, their existing skills, and help them reach their goals, whether that's academic or in their career. So absolutely. And, and there's a lot of potential in that. 
I personally plan to dig a little bit deeper with that too. I'm happy to be of service to the Rosemead campus and, and your efforts there and assisting in building those community partners. It's important, just like forging a relationship between or forging stronger relationships between the faculty and the student. Our work now is also about forging strong relationships with our business community, our other community partners, and the student. So for a long time, we've, you know, we focused on the relationship between the faculty and the student, but there really hasn't been an emphasis on maybe the last, I would say, five to seven years where we shifted. The culture of our community colleges have shifted, where we're hyper-focused on forging those strong relationships between the community partner and the student via internships, via employment, via curriculum design, via mentorship. I mean, we can go on. The list goes on and on and on. So I'm really excited about that. I'm, I'm super interested and happy to be of, of service to you and, and the campus as your role evolves within our community partnerships. I wanted to kind of take a, a minute and just shift gears a little bit because I had the pleasure of actually sitting into one of your classes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are, for those who don't know, you are an adjunct professor of educational leadership and organizational change for the Rossier School of Education at USC. I had the pleasure of really sitting into your class and, and really kind of seeing how your work within being a social justice advocate really shine through not only as a leader, but as a faculty, as someone who's influencing the minds of other future leaders. And what an amazing experience that was. And how important is that to you to continue to be in the classroom so that it, it really shapes what your role here as a leader at PCC and the community? Thank you, Salatrisa. Just so folks know, her grade did not depend on what she just said. <laughs> <laughs> The course is over. It's been over for a few years, but thank you so much. And I love teaching. I didn't think I would enjoy it that much. And so I'm so honored that I keep getting called back. You know, um, USC is is um, a leader with their educational programs and the Rossier School of Education. And so when I'm asked to return and continue teaching, it is just something that I, I love to do. So thank you. Thank you, Salvatrice, for that wonderful compliment and, and that it impacted you. And to teach the diversity courses, I mean, I teach different courses, but to teach the diversity course is one of my favorites because I feel that I'm able to share my experiences as an educator, as an administrator in my 20 plus, you know, almost 30 years of experience and providing experiences to theory. And we have lots of theories that talk about history and, and frameworks and particularly with diversity. But if we are not able to demonstrate how that happens in real life, then they're just theories and frameworks. And so being able to share that and challenge folks to think about what that might look like in our workplaces, in our school settings, with our students, but with our colleagues at the table where decisions are made. And so it really has been an incredible experience. And so, yes, I've been teaching with USC since 2012, almost 10 years. And so it has been a part of my social justice advocate, for sure, that I'm able to bring in. And you know, it seems to me that those students are getting younger every year, but uh, being able to share my, my experience 
experiences with them. And and like I said, and they're challenge them with their experiences and question what their upbringing has been, what has been societal norms, and um, to what extent uh, do we need to challenge those societal norms so that we can continue with progress to ensure that peace about dignity and respect and justice for everyone, but particularly for the marginalized communities that have historically been underserved and forgotten. How do we help those students and provide that student support as they move along their academic journey, whether it might be through your work at USC or even here at at PCC? That is quite the challenge, right? Because we, as educators, we ourselves have been conditioned to deliver our services and the work that we do in a structure that is founded on privilege and power. And so I believe that it's not so much to have our students conform to our educational structure, but really reflecting on ourselves personally and understanding if we have certain policies or protocols in place, take a look at them. Where are they coming from? Why do we do the things that we do? And who was the one who was able to make this decision, right? Who were the folks who designed this protocol? And many times these protocols or practices are are based on efficiency, but not to the sense of work efficiency. Efficiency is, how is this easier for me? How is this easier for me to get my work done? And many times it might be easier for us to get our work done, but it really is much more of a challenge for students. Or we have those assumptions that students are coming to our educational institutions to receive an education. And so therefore, the education they receive should be a historical one, one based on tradition of education without realizing, earlier I mentioned that our students may have priorities and work is a priority. Education is too, but understanding that education might not be that number one where traditionally, right, when we think of that 18 to 22-year-old who's decided to go to college, we automatically assume that that's their number one priority. And so shifting that to say, perhaps it's not their number one priority, or perhaps it's tie with working, because working is a livelihood, and they're not going to be able to go to school if they're not working, because we got to think of their basics, right? They're working because they have to put food on their table. They're working because they have to pay their rent. And so understanding that shift and then how do we then look at our own biases? And I I carry them just because I'm a first generation student doesn't mean that I don't have biases. And understanding that my experience is different than the experience that, that our students have. And so hearing them, I do surveys at Rosemead at least once a year so that I'm tapping in and understanding what's changing and what's not, right? What do we continue and what do we real are we hearing directly from the students about what's not working and what do they need and so having those those conversations those intentional checking of the pulse with our students and understand that and then going back to to our staff our fellow administrators and say this is what I'm hearing from our students this is what I'm, I'm gathering so that we're constantly I like to say that there's a, a culture of inquiry and so that we're always having this we don't do a survey and say oh every five years we'll do it well that by then it's outdated. And by the time we have to change things, so keeping a pulse on that and creating a culture of inquiry helps us understand that piece. It sounds like that's a really good piece of advice, right? (laughs) A good piece of (laughs) advice for educators that are listening and even our community partners that are listening because culture of inquiry not only happens within the organization, but it also happens within our network. We as 
external facing areas of the college, it sounds like for us, we really should be asking our partners what supports they need. How can we bridge our programming closer to their organizations and vice versa? What would be your last piece of advice to our listener who is either A, an educator looking to you know, really think differently about their role in their institution and our community partner who is saying, how do we engage? What's the best way to engage? Because I, I want to do it. I just don't know how. For the community partner or let's say the, the business owner, right, or, or folks that are looking to the community college to help them with their workforce. And this is a conversation I have with students when they come to me and they say, I'm working and my employer is not considerate of my school schedule. And they say, and my faculty member is not considerate of my work schedule. And so being partners is really understanding that role, right? If we're a community partner in the workplace, then we have to understand that our employee, our staff member is also a student. And if we're a faculty member and and an educator in the educational institution, then it's understanding that our student is also an employee. And so being able to be mindful of that in in our delivery of service or in, if I'm the faculty member, realizing that 75% of my students are working more than 20 hours a week. That's going to impact the learning. And, and, and so assignments, you know, and this is where I tell some of, some of the faculty members at, at Rosemead when they tell me, you know, our students, my students aren't completing their assignments. What's the purpose of your assignment? Is it to assess learning or is it busy work? right? Because if it's the matter of, well, we need to do weekly assignments because they need to learn, then what is engaged learning? So we have that conversation about how do we properly assess, how can we assess learning that doesn't result in busy work? Because it's easy for us. It's it's more efficient for the faculty member to say, I'm just going to have all these worksheets and let them finish um, and have have the students do them. But is it really a true assessment of the learning that's going on? There may be a student who can articulate in the classroom and demonstrate that learning is taking place that doesn't result in busy work. So it's changing that. It's shifting our mindset about understanding what learning is. And it's redefining success, right? Success for me, success for you is completely different for a student who is working 30 hours a week. Success to them might be I just need to pass this class. That's okay. It doesn't have to be an A for that student, right? An A is something for another student, but it doesn't have to be for that student. So understanding, redefining um, what success means and, and redefining assessments and what does that look like. Well, I'll tell you what, I've had some really great takeaways here this morning. There's <laughs> these nice little nuggets. I mean, I, I, I wrote down culture of inquiry. I love that. It's going to be on my wall, by the way. Um, oh, and, then, and then another one is redefining success because we have our goals and not only our personal goals, but then goals that are shared with us via the chancellor's office, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a one size fits all. So that's really the challenge is how do we evolve to a culture with an organizational culture that doesn't have a one size fits all approach. This was absolutely lovely. Thank you so very, very much. If we have listeners who'd like to get in touch with you, whether they're 
educators or, or some of our community partners, what's the best way to keep in touch with you? They can always look me up on the directory at PCC at Pasadena City College and they can find me. But LinkedIn, as you mentioned, I, I do have a LinkedIn profile. And, and so many times I do get messages. So folks can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me personally on my email. That's um, at pasadena.edu. But also um, we've been a little dormant during the pandemic, but we do have a, a PCC Rosemead Instagram so they can definitely follow us in terms of the Rosemead um, Satellite Campus through Instagram. Excellent. We'll be sure to add those into the show notes. Thank you so much, Raquel. This has been lovely. I know you have a lot and you have a lot ahead of you, so I won't get in your way. I'll get out of your way (laughs) now. (laughs) Thank you, Salvatrice. Thank you for inviting me. This was cool. We'll chat soon. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.